0: But here we are, nearing the end of November 2021. Who would have thought? Apparently it's less than five weeks till Christmas. (laughs) I'm so not ready for that. (laughs) Now, if you're anything like me, you might have been reflecting on how different life looks now to what you thought it was probably gonna look like. For those of you guys that are nearing the end of your degrees, you probably didn't think that half of it was going to be conducted in the midst of a pandemic. And I know for me, like these memories come up on social media and I look at them and I think, huh, we really had no idea what was about to, to hit us. I remember actually at the start of last year sitting down as a family and talking about some of the goals that we had. And, you know, we talked with the kids around things like goals for dancing. Obviously, that wasn't for me. Um, goals for school, again, not for me. Yeah. Um, but really, there was a sense of anticipation for what God had in store for our lives and our ministries. Right. That part was me. Yeah. And then along came COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, as I was writing this, I was reminded of there was, um, there was an ad or a song. Along came something. It was, I don't know, Vince. Yeah, it was like for tires or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and I've had that stuck in my head. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. You're probably way younger than me. But along came COVID. And for the last almost two years, we've been riding the roller coaster of highs and lows, cancellations and postponements, time and again having things that we we'll looked forward to with, with high hopes being changed significantly or gone altogether. It's been a season of hopes dashed, deferred, or delayed. Our kids, that next generation, are growing up with a feeling almost of being like on a boat adrift at sea. And those kids that are at those critical points where they're transitioning on from primary school, or from intermediate, or are year 13s, who have been looking forward to this amazing last year of high school, haven't really even had the chance to have that fanfare of celebration, it's kind of been more like a party popper that just doesn't really work. And as you look at the people you're surrounded with day by day, there's a sense of tiredness, of fatigue, of being just a bit over it, really. Any plans that we do make are, are incredibly tentative, as we know that we also need plans B through Z for the inevitable change that will come. We plan for Christmas and summer holidays with no real sense of security in what it will actually look like. It's all a bit hopeless. Then you look a bit wider outside of your everyday circles and you see a world that is increasingly without hope. We're not only navigating this COVID pandemic, but being bombarded with news about worst case scenarios when it comes to things like climate change, increased instability between international powers, increased terrorist attacks, natural disasters, famine, war. It's all a bit hopeless. Even if you think about that word, hope, the world has reduced it to be more like a wish. You know, rub the lamp, out comes the genie, you've got three wishes. That's how elusive hope has become. People might say that they hope that X, Y, Z will occur, but what they really mean is they wish that X, Y, Z might occur, and they've got even less belief in it than if they had that mythical genie standing right in front of them. And it's interesting because the Oxford Dictionary actually defines hope as grounds for believing something good may happen, or an intention, if possible, to do something. Doesn't sound very reliable, or like something we can hold on to. So what about the biblical perspective on hope? Well, good news. Job eleven eighteen to 19 tells us that having hope will give you courage. You will be protected and you will rest in safety. You will lie down unafraid, and many will look to you for help. And then Romans 5 and verse 3 takes it further, saying, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. That sounds a lot more reliable, doesn't it? More definitive? And these are just two of the many verses that talk about hope and help us to understand that the biblical definition of hope is more about the confident expectation of what God has promised, and its strength is in his faithfulness. That sounds much more like the kind of hope I want in my life. We can read more about the role of hope in our lives in Hebrews 6. And I'd love for you to follow along on the screen, or if you've got your Bibles, turn with me now. And we're going to pick it up at verse 13. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So, God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us, he has become our eternal high priest in the order of, of Melchizedek. I'm glad my name is not Melchizedek. <laughs> This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. In the midst of all the noise, the chaos, the never-ending, relentless pace of change, or the storms that we know will come, in a world that insists that the church has to change to stay relevant, God is our constant throughout eternity. Our hope in Christ is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And this is why. Number one, because God is immutable. Immutable is such a great word. And some of you will have heard it before, and some of you will be thinking, what did she just say? It means unchanging through time, unalterable, ageless. God has never and will never change. It says in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, and I do not change. James 1.17 says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Right. So how else do we know that God is immutable? Well, God is eternal. When something changes, it has a before and an after. change changes the process between what something was and what something has become. Right. Change, therefore, happens within the constraints of time. Yeah. But God exists outside of time. And we read in Psalm 102 from verse 25 that long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment and discard them. But you are always the same. You will live forever. And Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because God is eternal. There is no before or after. He cannot change. God is immutable. God is also perfect. 2 Samuel 22, verse 31 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. And Psalm 12, verse 6 says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. When change occurs, it results in something becoming either better than it was before or worse than it was. God is perfect. Because He is perfect, He can't get any better. You can't add anything to God to improve Him. There is no God (laughs) 2.0. There's no optional upgrade that you kind of wonder do I upgrade now? Do I wait? (laughs) And if He were to change for the worse, then He'd no longer be perfect. If we were to try and take anything away from Him, well, we couldn't. We know that He is perfect, He cannot change. God is immutable. God is also omniscient. He knows everything. Isaiah 45 verse 10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. You know, we're so aware that people change their mind all the time because they learn or become aware of something that they didn't know before. As the world innovates and discovers more about His creation, what is known to mankind changes. It is why we now have things like electric vehicles, and we aren't still getting everywhere on horseback or transporting goods on donkeys. Quite pleased about that one. However, God knows it all already. He can't learn something new, He can't be swayed by a good debate or by someone's opinion. He won't suddenly become an expert because of articles he's read on the internet. He doesn't need to investigate and prove or disprove anyone else's theories. He has all the information. Nothing is new to him. He doesn't need to change his mind. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. God is immutable. We know that he is unchanging, that he is our only constant in eternity. He should be our constant. I'm going to get you to think back a few hundred years to when ships were the only way we could navigate the Earth, right? But it was a perilous journey. And for ships to navigate, they needed to use something constant to prevent them from getting lost or going off course. They would use charted known landmarks like an island that had previously been discovered, along with the time based on the position of the sun, moon and stars. Sounds a little bit kind of... I don't know, scary? They progressed to compasses, compasses as early as 1300, but it wasn't until the 18th century that the marine chronometer was invented. And a marine chronometer is actually just a clock that you, you can use on boats. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but, you know, don't overthink it. And that gave them greater security when they were attempting to cross uncharted waters. But they still needed the known, the charted landmarks. They needed a constant, things that they knew would not change so that if the tides or the currents changed or the wind blew in a different direction, they were still able to correct their course. God wants us to keep him as our constant. So when the current changes or the wind changes or we face a storm, we don't lose sight of where he is taking us. There's a story in 2 Kings 4 of a Shunammite woman who because of her hospitality towards the prophet Elisha, found favor with God. Elisha prophesied that this woman would have a son, something that she had longed hoped for. And about a year later, her son was born. Time passes, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 18. One day, when her child was older, he went out to help his father, who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly he cried out, "'My head hurts! My head hurts!' His father said to one of the servants, "Carry him home to his mother!' So the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and left him there. She sent a message to her husband, send one of the servants and a donkey, so that I can hurry to the man of God and come right back. Why go today, he asked. It's neither a new moon, f- mes- bleh, new moon festival, It's really hard to say, or a Sabbath. But she said, it'll be all right. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elisha, Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with you, your husband and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi, everything's fine. But when she came to the man of God at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She is deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. Then she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Then Elisha said to Kahazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. And the boy's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned with her. Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elisha and told him the child is still dead. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. Then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body, began to grow warm again. Elisha got up, walked back and forth across the room once and then stretched himself out again on the child. This time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother, he said. And when she came in, Elisha said, here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. Reading this story, it's easy to assume from the woman's repeated declarations that everything's going to be all right, that she was in a bit of denial about what was going on with her son. Like, she didn't reveal it to anybody else in her family. She put him in the prophet's room so that they didn't know that there was anything going on. The reality was not that she was in denial, though, but that she was in the middle of a serious storm. And her choice to only reveal what had happened to Elisha, the prophet who had given her the promise of a son, was because she knew that he represented the only hope that she could put her trust in. It was less of a, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi moment, and more of a, I have seen God's faithfulness through you before, and I know this is where I can place my hope. She recognized that God was a constant that she could use to navigate her way through this situation. And she knew that hope in God could be an anchor for her soul. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Not only because God is immutable, but because Jesus is our eternal high priest. Right. Now if we think back to that verse in Hebrews that I read earlier, it's really important to understand the context of, of how it was written. Hebrews, Hebrews was written to the Hebrew people, to the, to the Jews, to help those who had, who had grown up under the old covenant see and understand how God had established a new covenant through Jesus, the promised Messiah, Now under the old covenant, the high priest was the go-between, the mediator between God and man. And the job of the priest was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. One of the things that the high priest was responsible for was making yearly sacrifices at the Feast of Atonement in order to keep right that relationship between the people and God. The Jewish people understood that their separation from God required this until such a time that the promised Messiah came and that the priest was necessary to make a way for them into the presence of God. The law was preparation for Jesus' coming, and was never intended to fulfill the role that the prophesied Messiah would take. It was only ever a stopgap measure, until Jesus fulfilled God's once and forever plan for man's redemption. Now I encourage you to actually read Hebrews to see how this theme is developed further, because there's a whole lot in there that I'm not going to get into today, particularly through chapters Seven and ten to ten, but it goes on to show us that while the Levitical priesthood was not established with an oath, Jesus as an eternal high priest was fulfilling the priesthood pledged in Psalm 100. God doesn't make oaths all that often; Oaths were a human need to make our words trustworthy, as we already know, His word is trustworthy, when an oath is used as in the example of Abraham or of Jesus. He's doing it for our sake, so that we may recognize he is doubly dependable. He doesn't need to make an oath. He does it for us, so we know he is doubly dependable. This also pointed to the new covenant being a better, superior covenant. In Hebrews 10, reading from verse 11, it says this, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day by day offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool at his feet. For by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. That's us. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer more, any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. for God can be trusted to keep His promise. Amen. Jesus as our eternal high priest, has guaranteed our, ex- our access to forgive- <laughs> Try that again. Jesus as our eternal high priest, has guaranteed our access to forgiveness of sins right. and made a way for us to enter into the presence of God. Yeah. Our hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for ourselves, because God is immutable, unchanging. And because Jesus is our eternal high priest. What better hope to hold on to in the midst of chaos? What better anchor than hope in Christ in the middle of a storm? Now, I don't know about you, but I used to think that the sole point of anchors was to stop the ship going anywhere. Or maybe you've used something to anchor one object to another to keep it stable, give you that extra security. You've got a boat, you're going somewhere, you want to stop, put down the anchor. But then I discovered that in addition to this kind of normal use of an anchor that we might be familiar with, there's actually other types of anchors. There is something called a sea anchor and something called a drogue. And who knows whether I'm saying drogue right, because it's one of those weird spellings. A sea anchor is the larger of the two, and it's, it's not actually in contact with the seabed. It floats along on top. It moves with the ship and is used to control a drifting vessel and to stabilise a boat in heavy weather. The smaller drogue is used to slow a boat down in a storm, and it keeps the hull perpendicular to the waves, which means it won't go too fast down one wave and crash into the next. Nor will it swerve sharply and end up broadside to the waves where it could be swamped and sink. In addition to the anchor or the drogue, the line that is actually attached between the boat and these types of anchors also has a function. It acts like a shock absorber and helps to smooth out the load caused by the changing forces of the waves. Interesting, eh? So now, when I read in Hebrews that the hope we have in him is an anchor for my soul, I don't see it as God saying, well, hold everything, stop there. Yeah, it's true that he's my solid foundation, a solid rock on whom I can depend, and there are times when we do need to stop to seek him and be still in his presence. But often, in the midst of chaos, he doesn't want us to plant our feet, put down our anchor and stay there. He wants us to keep moving forward. In those times, I can trust in his unchanging nature to help me stay the course. Because of who he is, because he is immutable. Whatever storms I am facing will not cause me to drift off course, to crash into another wave or to sink, providing my security is firmly anchored in him. Because he is our eternal high priest, I can enter the presence of God and my eternity is secured. Ben, you can come back. And just as I do, I just want to finish with this. The world around us has lost its hope. Many, many people are being driven by fear. In fact, that's what drives a lot of behaviors and a lot of decisions. We are called to be bearers of that hope in Christ. But in order to carry that hope in us, we need to see it in all its fullness. To know deep within that we can rely on that hope as an anchor. To be filled with hope when the world has none. To know his perfect peace in the midst of turmoil. Psalm 62, verse 5 to 8 says this, Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. My people trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart to Him, For God is our refuge. Just as we sing, I just really encourage you look to God. Look to Him for your hope. Allow Him to fill your hearts again with that hope that can be an anchor for your soul, no matter what you're facing. For God is our refuge.